0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a very cool, groundbreaking interdisciplinary book titled Tudor Networks of Power, published by Oxford University Press in 2023, that is written by two authors with very different and interestingly complementary specialisms, Dr. Ruth Arnott and Dr. Sebastian Arnott, who are here to tell us about the book and how they have put together history and a lot of really I come from the history background. So, to me, this science is very complicated, but incredibly cool to analyze all sorts of networks in the Tudor world. Ruth and Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Thanks so for much goodness. for having us. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm so pleased to have both of you here. Could you start off, please, by introducing yourselves a little bit, explain why you decided to write the book, and also why write it together?
3: Ah, um, Seb, shall I go first?
2: Yeah, uh,
3: Um, so um, I am, by background I'm an early modernist, so I am professor of literary history and digital humanities at Queen Mary, but my background is in 16th century literature Um, and I happen to be married to Sebastian, uh, who is a network scientist and I'll I'll hand over to him.
2: Yeah, so I'm a... um... I'm a physicist by background. Um, I'm now an assistant professor at Cambridge in the Department of Chemical Engineering and Biotechnology. But I, uh, for a long time, I was in physics, and, I, uh, and there I started looking at networks about 15 years ago. And about um, at um, uh, network science, which is an interdisciplinary field um, that looks at all kinds of real-world networks and analyzes them using mathematical tools.
3: Yeah, and about in about 2012, we began working together i think i think it goes back to to 2008 maybe i i realized that um i had networks in my research and we started talking about it then and we never had time to do anything about it but um in around 2012 we said "Why, why don't we see if the the kinds of frameworks that you have in your work work with the kinds of correspondence networks that i work with so we did a little Study on a collection of a very small collection of about 300 letters held in Emmanuel College Library that were between um, underground Protestants writing in the Catholic reign of Mary the First. And it was a really great process. We found out lots of new, interesting things and we decided to scale it up. And that was the kind of beginnings of this book project.
0: Thank you for giving us that introduction. Um, And I think very much. Explaining to our audience kind of the cool uh, combinations and interdisciplinary nature that the book goes into. But I wonder, um, Ruth, perhaps you could tell us a bit about that correspondence that you uh, were working on and are still working on. Can you tell us
3: about the state papers and why you focused on these? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the Tudor state papers are maybe one of the biggest and most important kind of corpora of uh, 16th-century letters um, in, in kind of the English-speaking world. Um, and essentially what they are, um, are the working papers of the Secretary of State, um, but they include all sorts of colourful, different kinds of correspondence. So it, it's um, uh, administrative correspondence for, the, um, for England, it's diplomatic correspondence stretching across Europe and beyond, it's uh, intelligence gathering. It's intercepted correspondence uh, from foreign um, foreign powers and, and conspirators, uh, and it's also everyday people petitioning the government. So I first encountered it in my doctoral research, um, looking at um, p- prisoners' petitions uh, to the government. Um, so it, it, it encapsulates a very wide variety of uh, correspondence, um, and it is in numbers about one hundred and thirty thousand unique pieces of correspondence. That is massive, but
0: therefore very useful. So thank you for taking us through that. I was not surprised, therefore, given that size, um, that you both talked about in the book the idea that the chapters of the book are in many ways an experiment, um, because there's, I mean, I'm sure there's no way you could look at that entire corpus and have the book be anything less than multiple volumes. So could you maybe tell us a bit more about sort of that idea of chapters as experiments, and especially how you decided which things to focus on and include?
2: Yes, maybe I can say something. Uh, the So I think in each chapter, we sort of start out with looking at the network with some very basic network metrics and just measuring you know, how many people were connected uh, or to other people. So what's the distribution of connectivity and another sort of quite straightforward things you can measure in a network. And then we sort of looked at the output and Ruth in particular tried to look at the historical, uh, reasons for the, for the, for the sort of quantitative results we were seeing. And then usually from that emerged a sort of historical, um, research question that we could then reframe in, in terms of an another quantitative analysis and then do that. So we sort of had this iterative process of sort of basic quantitative analysis and then uh, some sort of close reading and then a reframing of the quantitative analysis that took into account this more specific research question. And then we sort of narrowed in on, on basically rephrasing the historical research questions in terms of uh, an algorithm or a pattern that we were looking for. So it's sort of discovering patterns and then sort of um, homing in on those patterns and, and zooming in to find those patterns across the data and then making historical sense of that. So I think that each chapter sort of has that that uh, underlying dynamic. Um, so, in that sense, they are experiments. Um, I, I would say. Yeah, I think
3: that's I think that's really good. And, yeah, I think what happens was we start with a general idea, um, and as I said, we kind of operationalize it as a series of kind of uh, quantitative queries. But what we result in is as a series of bespoke methods that are actually very sort of finely tuned to historical questions and. We, what we sought to do with the book was um, tell the stories that we were then able to um, excavate with those methods. So we, we, we sort of moved between those quantitative patterns that Seb talked about um, and then say, actually, now we can tell this story and we sort of trace individual people or um, discussions of certain topics. So we tried to move between that quantitative overview and the sort of narrative reality of moving through the letters. Mm. It definitely comes through uh, in that sort of process in the
0: book in a really interesting way. And definitely, I will reassure any historians listening, if you, like myself, are not a physicist by background, um, it is still incredibly easy to understand how this process works. Ruth, maybe more on the historical side for a moment. Could you talk a bit about a decision decision? throughout the book that I think is really interesting to place the term archive in inverted commas and an explicit hope that not only will readers see the chapters as experiments, but also that readers and listeners will think of the word archive in this sense consistently. Can you tell us a bit about that?
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, I spend a lot of time with um, librarians, archivists, so um, I think they'll be happy because people tend to bandy term the term archive around as, as this kind of um, authoritative entity, but the state papers are, a you know, like many um, archives and collections and digitized collections, they're sort of riddled with complexity in their institutional history. And so the the actual uh, data set uh, that un- underpins this book is from state papers online, and we, we got the underlying data from them. But anyone who knows the state papers or state papers online will know that actually... The, the letters and other documents that are kind of collected in this online resource don't just come from one archive. Lots of them come from the National Archives, but they also come from the British Library. They come from Hatfield House. Um, and the other thing to remember is that these are not all the state papers. They are kind of, a lot of it is only incoming. We don't have the matching outcoming. So it's a it's a partial archive. And also there are collections elsewhere that we could argue should be in this inverted commas archive but are not. So there are lots of papers for example in the Bodleian um, that um, probably should be regarded as state papers but um, are not. So it's it's a complex data set um, and so you just need to be very careful about thinking about it as an entity that is stable.
0: Yeah, I think, I think there will be a lot of librarians and archivists that are quite happy with that. So I thought it was worth highlighting. Um, thank you for the explanation. Now that we've got a bit of an idea of kind of how big and complicated this data source is and the iterative way through which you both um, interrogated the data, I'd love to talk a bit about the findings that you came to in the book, starting with um, perhaps the ways that the role of diplomat changed over the Tudor period and how we can see this through the data. Yeah thanks that's
3: a that's a really interesting question and um it, yeah we might think about um people's correspondence as giving them a kind of profile and what we see in the early part of the period is that people with a kind of classic diplomatic profile um which um, accounts for which is kind of um typified by having Correspondence links that really cross lots of otherwise disparate communities um, are filled by a certain sort of person. So you can understand why a diplomat might cross different communities. They are deliberately posted to foreign outposts so that they can bring intelligence back. There's no, you know, this is um, an island of information, and they are the bridge that brings that information uh, back to the government. And what we see in the very early part of the period is this this role is mostly fulfilled by people who are not professional diplomats, but rather kind of church figures who are um, dispatched in that diplomatic function. But um, we see people with a similar network profile changing over time. We see it increasingly being institutionalized. You see the increasing number of professional diplomats, people who were appointed to that role as their primary job, Um, But with the rise of that, that kind of institutionalization, we see something else happening in the background that um, there is the requirement for another category of person, a sort of extra diplomatic figure who is a kind of an intelligence producer. Um, And so we also see the rise of um, what we call kind of um, extra diplomatic intelligences or intelligence producers. Um, so I think there's some really interesting stories going on there. We're very interested in that kind of intelligence producer figure who sits alongside the diplomat who occupies that kind of um, institutional figure as um, uh, then supplemented by these these shadowy, more shadowy figures who have their fingers um, in all of the local intelligence networks and kind of supplement uh, official lines of information. So... Um, I think that's it in a nutshell. Um, it, it's It's a story that's been partly told by other fantastic historians, but it's really nice that we can kind of show quantitatively exactly how that role was changing. Um, and it's it's a very it's a very neat way of showing um, how quantitative methods can really underpin uh, patterns that have been observed um, through a different kind of scholarship. No, absolutely, it, it really very much does that.
0: Um, and I think the data also helps us as historians, perhaps identify areas that, as you said, we might've seen sort of anecdotally or in certain cases, or maybe we haven't really noticed at all um, given the way we tend to look at things without access to great data like this. So one of those questions, um, Sebastian, perhaps you could uh, help us get some insight in, is who is writing all these letters? Uh, one of the interesting insights in the book is that 4% of the letters in the data set were written by women. That sounds like a really simple statement, but how did you figure that out?
2: Yes, that's a good question. Um, so uh, we we the the we found a resource um, of biographies of of Tudor women and we used the first names from that list as a starting point. So we we compiled a list of female first names in the Tudor period. We then also compiled a list of titles and other sort of ways that women were commonly addressed in correspondence. And then we used that list to search the name labels in the in the data. And then we produced a, um, a sort of simple interface to Uh, For then, someone to check these um, names against the the actual letters. So we had had, uh, we had two research um, undergrad research assistants at at Stanford, actually, uh, Tani Thompson and Emily Shah, who uh, went through a lot of labour using this interface to actually hand check each of those um, sort of uh, those assigned genders, so to speak, um, to um, to the individual letter writers. And uh, so, so there are quite a few names that are counterintuitive, for instance, uh, there are some French men who are named Anne, um, as, just as an example. And there, there are other examples of names that are commonly now thought of as male or female, but n- weren't necessarily the same in the Tudor period. So, um, so yes, we went through the sort of automatic extraction plus a manual curation process for that.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: I have to say that might be one thing that historians would be particularly wanting to read more detail of in the book, because it is, Sebastian, you make it sound kind of so straightforward and so simple, uh, but a massive amount of work went into that. If we then think, though, of having that information of being able to identify the 4% being women, what can we learn about power structures surrounding and involving those women once we
3: have that data? Yeah, Um, I think so that 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 was a great question for us to think about and um we started one way of thinking about it we we wanted to understand what words women use more classically to men uh as opposed to what words men more classically use in their letters to women, and we found this really interesting trend that um the language of women's letters was all about like receiving. <laughs> and being beneficiaries, and men's letters to women more about them being the kind of givers of information of goods. Um, And so it created a very specific dynamic. Um, But when we actually looked at the network structures around them, we we observed something a little bit more complex. Um, And Seb might be able to talk about the method here a little bit more in detail, but we, um, we were really interested in how to model... Um, the mediation relationships around women. So um, how often they were kind of in a vulnerable position as a kind of petitioner, how often they were kind of put in a position as being a kind of mediator, and how often they were in positions of power. And um, we did this by looking at something called feed forward loops. And we found that our, our method um, was actually a really effective way of finding instances of letters in which women were petitioners. It was extremely effective in finding those. Um, and it, we're working on the um, instance of the letter rather than the individual, because of course women are in different positions throughout their life. Sometimes they're vulnerable, sometimes they have more power. Um, and so it allowed us to identify very quickly letters where women were petitioning because they'd become widows or because their husbands were in dire straits or um, other kinds of um, financial considerations. But it also allowed us to find these positions where women were actually wielding more power, uh, where they were put in the position of mediators, which meant that they were the representative of someone else, representing someone else's um, case, um, which is a kind of rhetorical position of power. Um, And we also were able to find those more more rare cases where women were actually in a position of power and able to give something. And this kind of undercut some of the narratives about the women we found. We were looking at people like um, Lady Burley, um, Mildred Cecil, Lady Burley, people like Anna um, Plantagenet, um, like Lady Lyle, and also um, um, the Duchess of Ferrier, and sort of complicating the narratives around them because often they're presented as, an, with, with the exception of Mildred Cecil, uh, as kind of naive kind of uh, figures who are maybe sort of manipulated by the men around them. But actually, we, we suggest that the structural positions in which we found them suggest that they were, they were wielding power in a quite knowing way. Which is
0: definitely something that I think we probably knew from certain specific case studies. But to be able to see it kind of across this range is absolutely fascinating. This, in fact, brings me to another thing I'd like to ask about, um, because obviously there's some, for example, issues that we knew are going to be coming up in a data set like this. We know that people are going to talk about the great matter um, of Henry VIII's attempts to divorce Catherine of Aragon. We know that certain things are going to kind of pop up if we're looking at a lot of letters. Um, But to what extent, looking at this data, did you find things that were coming up in letters that maybe we weren't expecting or maybe would be a bit more of a surprise?
2: Yes. So um, uh, I could maybe talk about that. So the... So what I mean, of course, if you if you use any quantitative method, what you will see quite quickly is, first of all, what most people know about, because whatever you notice first in the archive is also <clears throat> likely to be what you see first in the quantitative method. You see the people who are well connected, who sort of jump out of you uh, out out of the page uh, at you. Um, but but the nice thing about you know being able to do this large scale data analysis is that we can sort of cast our eye wider and, and see the sort of overlooked or uh, the sort of outliers that you might not see if you're if you're just doing traditional archival research. So one example is um, we were able to look at uh, people's movements in great detail and, and their itineraries over time, approximate itineraries as indicated by their places of writing. And um, one thing you can then do is you can look at whether people are co-located in the same place, and you can even calculate... A sort of estimate of how, how you know how surprising that is that they are in the same place. Given that you know, if, if two people overlap in London, that's not very surprising. But if they overlap in some remote French village and they are both in the state papers, then there's probably something going on. So you can sort of uh, search for these kinds of patterns, and you can find um, you can find uh, interesting case studies that way. And we we have managed to. Um, we managed to identify a few interesting stories that were, were almost certainly not known to historians before, at least not, not certainly not written about. Um, uh, and maybe Ruth can jump in. there. we've got a, a nice case study with Seth and Oh per- Perkins, Seth Perkins and um, Seth Cox and Thomas Seth Perkins. Christian Perkins,
3: yeah. Well, no, I, think, I think just to sort of back up on what Seth was saying is you know, he almost undersells it here. But what we, we, what we did was we kind of time-ordered all the letters from one person to create inferred itineraries. We then kind of cross-referred all the letters to see who was in the same place. It, it was an enor- enormous amount of computation. And we can query this in any number of ways because knowing two people are in the same place at the same time has this kind of amazing ability to allow historians to quickly find accounts that might corroborate uh, a historical account they know or to undermine it. And, and this is why that we like the story of um, uh, Perkins and Cox because it kind of undermines an official narrative. Uh, so, for example, um, Christopher Perkins intersected with a man called Seth Cox on two different lo- uh, two different occasions. And they're notable because they're kind of statistically unlikely because one happened in Prague, um, in 15, uh, July 1593 and what happened in Krakow in April 1595 and across the whole state papers people are very very rarely in those locations and the fact that they're there on the same date makes them probably historically significant. So on both occasions we know that Perkins was there on official embassy. Why Cox is there is difficult to ascertain because Almost nothing is known about him, even in the history of um, even in his family history. He's only mentioned in passing as someone who um, died fighting in the Irish wars in 1599. But by sort of reading his letters very carefully, we can start to see that he was probably an agent working for the government who was sent to verify that official diplomatic report that Perkins was sending. And I thought at one point, maybe he's his servant. But when you read the contents of these letters, you can see that he's. Very much his own man he's there he's there with his own agenda because he is not complimentary about Perkins at all there's one letter what he sends to Robert Cecil where he says that um he says that uh, Perkins received a scornful audience and a cold visage so he wasn't well received while Perkins is writing letters back home saying oh yes the diplomatic negotiations went so well <laughs> so this is a great example of how historians might use this particular piece of code to just very quickly find other accounts. Um, And this is essentially what historians are always trying to do, right? We're trying to kind of corroborate our findings or complicate them. And so this is a method that does just that. It's about finding other accounts, other eyes that might have been on an event to tell them in much more fulsome detail. Thank you for walking us through uh, that,
0: how that works and also that example that is so interesting to illustrate it. Another experiment I'd like to ask about in a similar sort of vein is instead of looking for kind of surprises or piecing the things together um can you tell us what we can learn if we pick a particular word and look at how it's been used over time um I know you did this with a number of words in the book but it is the new books network so I kind of have to ask you to use the example of the word book itself
2: yes maybe I can say something first on the on the technical side so we we sort of look for words that are uh unusually frequent in a particular year so uh, in, in fact the, the analysis allows you to take any set of letters uh, and to look for any words that are disproportionately common in that set of letters compared to all the other letters so you could do the same with a, a set of people or set of uh, or, or maybe a set of locations but in this case and um, we're doing sort of year by year to see what are sort of the topics that are particularly talked about in a given year sort of the trending topics and and, uh, and we found a number of different words that exhibited interesting patterns, such as, you know, Rome, for instance, decays over the 16th century, as you might predict um, in a sort of characteristic way. And, and then you get these uh, words that have spikes, which are, uh, refer to certain events or, or people being talked about. Um, and um, so these allow you to sort of also classify topics and in, in, uh, words that sort of share a similar profile might be also related by topic. And um, the word book is really interesting because it has several interest, uh, several different uh, reasons why it crops up over the 16th century. And I think Ruth's probably the best person to talk about that.
3: Yeah. And I think as Seb pointed out that, you know, these words might pop up at different moments because of different events. So we found that those sort of crazy peaks that we were finding in certain uses of words corresponded with... Uh, moments of newsworthiness but the same word might be newsworthy at two different moments in the 16th century for different reasons uh, and but books is a good example of that we have like this little surge in use of the word books in the sort of uh 1520s and what you see when you kind of do close readings of the of the of the letters bearing that word is they're talking about the pestiferous books uh coming into the to england from the continent with all of these heresies all these uh Heresy is about Protestantism um, and the kind of uh, book burning and all this kind of uh, whole policy around trying to identify those books and eradicate them so that people's minds wouldn't be um, uh, uh, turned by these heretical ideas. However, we see a different kind of surge in the use of the word books in the um, very late 1520s and early uh, 1530s around uh, Henry VIII's Great Matter, his uh, attempt to secure a an annulment of uh, his uh, marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And what's actually happening there is uh, the the references to books there are um, being pushed by a certain group of people who are trying to gain the, um, uh, to sort of prove the scholarly basis for the uh, illegality of the marriage between Henry and Catherine. And so it's this kind of very scholarly process that he's put into place where, where the, uh, uh, Figures are going into libraries uh, to try and gather evidence about why this uh, marriage was null and void in the eyes of God. So it's a very kind of different bookish moment. Um, so you see how just a vague word can kind of point you towards a, a very specific set of events. And we pushed the work in different ways. We actually, we found that, you know, events were normally signalled by a whole cluster of words. Um, and we would sort of look at um, not just why they were surging but actually how those words moved through a network Uh, and that was particularly interesting so looking at um, how the usage of words was disseminated across a group could tell us about which groups were discussing a topic over time how it was disseminating um, across time and place and so again we think that's a really fantastic method for people to take and apply to their own research questions and with each of our kind of experiments in the book we really hope that people will take the data and take the code and apply it to their own specific research problems. Um, So yeah, that's our hope. Are there any particular
0: research problems or areas you think might be most exciting for people to take this and go forward
3: with it? Uh, I think there's, well, I think each chapter does a different, (laughs) does a different thing, of course. And so there's a, there's a number of different routes that people could take. So um, for example, some chapters point to i think overlooked historical figures um for example like we have quantitative evaluations that suggest that the secretary sir william paget was actually a really significant secretary of state and what, whereas like walsingham and cromwell and burley have had all of the scholarly attention he hasn't he's had like one book length study on him and so we think maybe that's overdue and people like christopher munt um, who was a diplomat, who is absolutely everywhere in the networks that we're identifying. He's really only got one scholarly um, article dedicated to him. And it's it kind of makes him actually quite boring. But actually, I think he was a really key figure. Um, but one of the things that we're really interested in, we think is a really exciting avenue, is the idea of the network profile that we developed. We kind of developed this method that is like a unique network fingerprint <laughs> for people, and that we then uh, develop this method for clustering people. So, you know, if you can find a diplomat, who are the people most like that diplomat? Often there are the diplomats. Um, and it allows you to kind of look at categories of people and their correspondence behaviours. And we're interested in those extra diplomatic figures I was talking about earlier, those of intelligence producers who are not diplomats, they're sort of agents um, in the service of the government. So, Sometimes they're military figures, sometimes they are traveling scholars, sometimes they are servants of diplomats, often they're merchants, people who are kind of moving around and useful to the government. And I think that this kind of network profile work suggests there's some really interesting work to be done on categories of people. So individually, these, these men might not look like they're worthy of an entire article. But I think as a category of people, they become very relevant and we can tell a story at the aggregate about them. Uh, and that's something that we we're really keen to do more of. Um, and I think other, otherwise, we've got some really great methods were developed, especially with the tracing the movement of topics, being able to trace the movement of people. It allows us to do some really interesting things about tracing how information actually moved in the early modern world, how intelligence moved, how it was intercepted, which we touch on a little bit in the book. Um, Uh, yes, and to do something quite ambitious at that scale. There's lots of other things um, (laughs) which we suggest in the epilogue, um, which we hope people will pick up the data and code and maybe uh, take it further. Are there any others you'd like to mention? Oh. uh... (laughs) There don't have to be. I mean, that was a great list already. I mean, I think, what else? I mean, I think what we've done is we've tried to future-proof the data a bit as well, haven't we, Seb? With by putting linked data in there um, for well-known people. So what that means is that you could hook this data up to other data sets, so other correspondence data sets, which we did on a subsequent project called Networking Archives. You could link it up to larger uh, or, or more diverse forms of letters, but you could also link it to other document types. So then you would be able to say, let me link these letters from Cromwell to his other writings to... Um, information about his uh, objects he owned and portraits about him. So the power of linked open data there would allow you to tell a sort of more multifaceted story. Um, And I think there's also something to be done around the ghost archive of what isn't there. We talked earlier about, um, you know, the the data that hasn't made it into the archive, the data that's held elsewhere, the data that's been destroyed. And I, I think there's clues in the text that would allow us to kind of paint a picture of what exactly is missing how much is missing and what this archive might look like if it was all there um yeah so one of our colleagues always talks about it as the ghost archive and uh, i think that would be a really fun project to look at okay i do have to ask you a follow-up on that Can you, <laughs> what what are some of these clues what what might be we be able to reveal well, um, letters are really, in this period, are really formulaic. So you would you would open in a very sort of formula, formulaic way, you know, reading someone saying, this is a response to your letter of the X, of the X date. Um, and because of the kind of formulaic nature of that text, you could use sort of natural language processing to identify the date, the sender and the recipient, and then cross-refer it with the database to say, is this letter in the database? Yes, No. And if not, you could kind of create a new entry uh, for uh, the letter that doesn't exist. Um, that's one thing. Any any other thoughts, Seb?
2: Yeah, well, you could also, um, something we've also thought about is because we've got quite extensive descriptions of the letters, you could do natural language processing to mine those, those descriptions for you know, mentions of people and places and you could... Uh, essentially construct a, a social network beyond the letter network and, look, and, and, and in a way that's what we did with our first project with the Marian Martyrs, we we actually um, we went beyond, beyond the letter connections and looked into the contents of the letters that all the uh, people mentioned and uh, managed to construct a, an additional social network and that actually revealed a lot of interesting things about sustainers and background figures in the network that were essential to its Survival, so um, we're, we're, they weren't the prominent letter writers. So, in, in a way, one could do something on a much bigger scale along those lines and extract a sort of sort of shadow network of of um, contacts, of social links that aren't documented by letters but are documented in the letters, in the letter contents.
0: Thank you for explaining um, those possibilities. I think it's very exciting. Uh, and of course, there's lots more for anyone intrigued to read in detail about kind of what this, these experiments look like and therefore what else could be done with them in the book. I know you both have just told us a whole bunch of things that could be done with this data that hopefully people will take up and do. Is any of this or any of these things what you will each be working on next? What, what's next for either of you or you together?
3: Um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> we we do want to do more because we love this data set so much and we think it's got so much potential to link to other one uh, other related data sets. Um, we've got an article forthcoming with a great colleague called Rachel Madura on letter interception, uh, which sort of takes one of the, some of the ideas in the book and goes a little bit further with it. That's coming out in June. But I think we would like to do more with this idea of uh, looking at the mentions of people and places inside the letters so uh, if anyone wants to fund that research we would be <laughs> <laughs> we would be delighted but that's that's something that's on our on our agenda um and we've done we've done work in the kind of intervening years with the um emlo project um, early modern letters online project in oxford so that tudor networks of power data set has been recon- reconciled uh, sort of linked with um, the Stuart State Papers letters and all of the letters already in their data set, which are all much more about the kind of republic of letters. And what we've sought to do there is show actually how intertwined government correspondence was with those intellectual networks of the early modern world. And we've done some preliminary work on that, but that, is, that feels like really untapped, a really untapped resource and I think is going to be huge when it gets released. That is very exciting. So, thank you for um, highlighting
0: that for us. Sebastian, is there anything you'd like to add?
2: Um, No, I think, yeah, Rita already said it. It would be, yeah, once the um, combined data set is also available, I think that will be an even richer resource. I think that's about 450,000 letters. Wow. Um, So, that, yeah, that should hopefully.
3: That's coming with the relaunch of the Early Modern Letters Online database which is in in progress at the moment. So I think in the next few months, we might see some movement there. All right. Well, lots of exciting things to look forward then, uh, forward to. And of
0: course, anyone who wants to get into the kind of nuts and bolts and details of all of this in advance of that launch, uh, the book is very straightforward. It's called Tudor Networks of Power. And it takes readers through all of these experiments and more published by Oxford University Press. Ruth and Sebastian, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us.
3: Thank you so much for having us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.